Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop. And you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to Nick Lug Daily. It's Friday the 24th of November. Tom Stanley in for Nick, although plenty of uh, Nick in this podcast today. He's at, at Goffs and he'll be providing updates from over in Ireland for us. Uh, talking of Ireland, we'll be speaking to two Irish riders who are basing themselves abroad for the winter. Dylan Bram at Monagle. He takes his first ride in Australia on Sunday. And Ben Cohen joins us from Dubai. Uh, he's on a, another bunch of exciting horses for new boss Michael Costa out here today. We will be looking ahead to the domestic action this weekend. There's plenty of good stuff between Ascot and Haydock and more besides coming your way. And Lee Mottershead will be my guest. But first of all, with an eye on the weekend, here's Harry Cobden. I've got four nice rides on Saturday. Um, that, would, uh, that would all have good chances, so I'm um, really looking forward to them. Uh, the, the obvious one then, um, and 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 he's going up against sort of a, an old foe now in the form of Shishkin. How, how does or how do you approach the race with Pictori? Well, um, I actually watched um, I watched the last time they clashed at Ascot last night, and I was sat there trying to <laughs> trying to work out how I'm going to um, crawl 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 back. 16 lengths but um, I, I've got a plan in my head I know that um, Paul has managed to get loads of work into Pictor and he hasn't missed a day and he's ready for his life um, mm. so I'm so I'm hoping that we're um, we're as fit and as ready as, that, as we're going to be um, I'm sure Nicky Sauce is exactly the same but we've just got to try and have a go so uh, I don't think we'll be hanging around too much Fine. so uh, interesting do, do you I mean, it feels like you're saying that, you know, both both of those horses at, at 100%, um, your horse yeah. is, is going to struggle to win. But I, you know, I've, I've had the impression of hearing from, from Paul um, sort of in the build-up to this season, and Nick has referenced this, that sort of, you know, pick Dory and Brave Man's game might not have as much between them as, as, as people have in their minds. I mean, do, do you feel that, that pick Dory has to take a real step forward this, this year to, to go in at the, at the very top level? Well... He was obviously very good in the Melling Chase last year, but at the same time, there was no Brave Man to gain Shiskin or um, real, real champion in the race was there. So, um, if I was to put my hand in my heart, Pick Dory has to step forward. Officially on Handicap 18, I think he's got 10 or 11 pounds to find with Shiskin on Saturday. Um, so, I'd be kidding myself 
if um, if he didn't have to step up, you know. Um, hopefully he's a bit older and stronger this year, so there um, could be a little bit of improvement there. But, um, you know, on all-known form, and, you know, you're looking through Pictori's form and Shiskin's form, he has to step up. Mm. Um well, we'll come to Haydock, but uh, just on the, the Coral Hurdle and, and Blue King Doru, I guess it looks as though he has to step up as well, but he's he's certainly got age on his side. He has. Um, uh, just looking at the race, I didn't think it was the, 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 the strongest, um, strongest ever race. Um, you know, there's a lot of prize on offer, isn't there? And I think, um, you know, if he puts his best foot forward, um, he, he could be right there. Straight to Brave Man's game. Who, obviously, I mean, you're going to be sad not to be partnering. But how, how do you? How much do you think he's going to have come on for Weatherby? Massively. I was looking at the looking at the race this morning, um, and I actually spoke to Paul about it when I was in the yard this morning. And you know, he basically asked my opinion and what I thought. Um, I think he's obviously the best horse in the race he's the highest rated horse in the race I don't think the track will be a problem he's won round there before I'm certain the trip's not an issue um, he'll he'd have come on a lot since um, since Weatherby so um, I think he's very much the horse to beat and um, you know only the four runners in the race that'll be right up his street so um, yeah looking at him he's I, I think he should I think he's a very worthy favourite and I wouldn't want to ride any other horse in the race. couple of quick questions. How tired was he at the last at Weatherby? Um, he'd obviously just blown up probably 50 yards before the last. Um, and that was why he made that mistake. We didn't go that quick on the way around and then we sprinted from the start of the straight. Um we sprinted from the from from the from the top of the straight down over the last few, and we just had a little blow before the last. He didn't actually have a massively hard race because I hung on to him the whole way. Um, some would say I should have kicked on, but I know for a fact, looking back, if I kicked on earlier, the great horse would have only beaten me further because I'd have blown up earlier, quicker, you know. So um, I'm <laughs> I'm not going to take any flack for that. <laughs> Is there any part of you that is worried about that monster battle in in the Gold Cup last year that that, that might have taken the edge off him this season and going forward, or not? Do you think he he can be right back to that level again? Um, I know he's right back. I saw him. I saw him in the week, and I've never seen him look so well. Uh, he was actually doing a few canters and he was bucking and squealing a couple of days ago, going around the going around the loop as he'd done his first four canters and he was just about to do his next four and um, his run at Punchestown to me suggested that the, that the Gold Cup didn't take all that much out of him because he ran incredibly well there I know what caught him out at Weatherby um, you know if if he was 110% there he would, he, he, he would have won that day and um, I know he's in good form going into this race Thanks Harry good luck at Ascot Alright cheers Tom Lee, then your take on this weekend's jump racing, in particular in, in Britain, but but I guess that the state of national hunt racing currently across both sides of the Irish Sea. 
Yes, um, Tom. Well, it, it's something, the, the wider state of jump racing at the moment is something that has been a discussion point in recent days, in recent months and in recent years, really. Um, I was on uh, the BHA's Quality Jump Racing Review Group that um, proposed, alongside the Jumps Pattern Committee, a number of changes to the British Jumps Pattern that were implemented for this season. Um, that meant led to some races being moved, changed or scrapped. And that was with a view to try to boost the competitiveness of races at the, the top level. That was certainly one of, one of the aims. But you look at the the racing over this weekend and your first response would be that there is more still to do. Um, Richard Forrestal, my colleague at the Racing Post, our Ireland editor, noted in a column this week, um, he referenced the the fact that in the, the Troy Town chase recently in, in Ireland in Navan last weekend, Gordon Elliott had 14 of the 20 runners. Chris Cook mentioned that as well, or wrote about that in his column today nine, no nobody's critical of Gordon Elliott but under underlines the extent to which he and other superpower trainers are increasingly dominating the sport we have very small fields for a number of of major races the Schler chase at Cheltenham last weekend had four runners the Betfair chase on Saturday has four runners the 1965 chase at Ascot has four runners the Ascot hurdle has five runners and we're seeing in a lot of developmental races particularly novice chases uh, extremely small fields both in weight for age uh, conditions novice chases uh, i should say conditions novice chases and in novice handicap chases which there are many more of now in the program with an uh, with an aim to, to boosting field sizes and, and how to solve the problem of british novice chases is something again that has been discussed for years and nobody has been able to find a solution to the problem. Um, and on top of all this, Richie makes a point in his column today that if you look at recent sales, uh, jump sales for young horses, young jumps horses, stores, foals, uh, um, there is uh, significant evidence that the market is in trouble as well. So if you are a representative of Jump Racing PLC, at the moment, there is real cause for concern. And I just say in relation to the, the small fields, um, Tom, I say we're looking ahead to a, a weekend where the two principal races in Britain both have four runner fields. Uh, Ed Chamberlain, um, ITV Racing's lead presenter, uh, wrote an intro piece for our big jump off jump supplement to the Racing Post, which we used to launch the core jump season and uh, one of the things ed said i'll just quote here and it's something he said before uh in previous pieces he said the biggest headache we face at itv is the scourge of small fields i cannot emphasize enough the extent to which they turn off sports fans they just won't look at a high quality forerunner race and say i can't wait for that they probably won't even watch the race regardless of who is running well we have brave man's game second the chart and gold cup and the king george winner um we have got a a very high class horse and the previous one of the race protect trap in the better fair chase we've got the grand national winner corrupt rambler we have very good horses running but ed's point is that for a general sports fan they just won't take an interest in a race 
like that. And I think because we're having a lot of races like that, not just this season, but in previous seasons, it's another reminder, I think, for people who love jump racing, and we all do love jump racing, that there is a problem with the sport and that the problem has not yet been fully tackled. Uh, just uh, two points. Uh, one, you could definitely look at having the 1965 chase and the Betfair chase on the same day where we had a couple of horses doubly entered as now not being fit for purpose because it leads to to those races relatively being uncompetitive. But there they are and they've coexisted for some time on the same day. On the Novice Chase um, programme, there, 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 there are two Novice Chases. There is one for mayors at, at Huntingdon. But 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 other than that, mayor's only novice chase. Two novice chases between Monday and Sunday this week that have attracted three runners, two four declared runners. But they had a two they had a two runner at Exeter and just a, a walk over at Warwick when the Twiston Davis horse was taken out. But there's only two races: one over two, three, one over two miles. It, you know, you might look at that and say, Lee, well, there's only two races. That's not too many races. But we are now at a point where we simply don't have the horses for those races. I don't think trainers would be would be voting to go down the Irish route and have to have horses running two novice chases before they get a mark to run in novice handicaps because they don't want to run against, you know, 130, 140 horses with a, with a 80, 90, 100 horse. So I, I don't know what the solution is, but it feels like we need to take into account the, the dwindling horse population and the lack of runners rated to, to a certain level to run competitively in the novice chases. And a wider point on Ireland as well, which you mentioned there, you've touched on the Troy Town. The Morgiana this weekend has four runners, two from Mullins, two from Elliot, but did only attract entries from those two yards. I think there were eight in total. There may have been 10. And the, the John Durkin, the other grade one this weekend, has nine entered runners. We're doing this just before declarations. But seven of them are from Mullins and Elliot. Then you've got a Mouse Morris entered horse and, and a Martin Brazel entered horse. So whether or not you have small fields over in Ireland, they are very concentrated from, from the yards that they are running from at the top level. Again, Gordon Elliott has come out and said since the Troy Town um, he's done nothing wrong. And if it wasn't for him, there would have been seven runners in the Troy Town if he'd only run one horse. And he's absolutely right. Gordon Elliott is doing nothing wrong. Willie Mullins is doing nothing wrong. You can't you can't criticise people for being good at what they do. And inevitably, when somebody is good at what they do, as a racehorse trainer, owners are attracted like magnets to those racehorse trainers. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. The problem is that a significant portion, proportion of the horses who would be good enough to run in races like the Troy Town, like the John Durkin, are in the hands of a small number of trainers. There is at least a blessing in Ireland that those two trainers, Gordon Elliott and Willie Mullins, yes, they have very many of the best horses, but they do run them against each other. There is at least that consolation. They're not keeping them apart completely. That said, going on to my final point in terms of the, the structure of races that we've got at the moment, Tom, if you look in Ireland, over the next two weekends, we have the, the Morgiana Hurdle this weekend and the Hatton's Grace Hurdle next weekend. In effect, the Irish graded programme, which like the British graded programme, has been massively bloated or significantly bloated. Uh, across our racing lifetimes, Tom. 
um, you have two champion hurdle trials in effect on consecutive weekends, which means that Willie Mullins can run Stateman in the Morgiana this weekend and he can run Ampere Pass in the Hatton's Grace Hurdle next weekend. Yes, one's over two miles, one's over two and a half miles, but traditionally those races have both been used for champion hurdle horses. How much better would it be if the system funneled both those two horses into the same race? Similarly, even with the changes that we've made to the British jumps pattern this season, and even though the uh, 1965 chase is over a significantly different distance to the Betfair chase, both those races, again, traditionally have been used for horses going towards the King George VI chase and, to a lesser extent, the Cheltenham Gold Cup, which means two horses, two races with four runners in each, both have horses heading towards the King George and potentially the Gold Cup, which seems doesn't seem ideal. And those of a, of a significant memory will remember that once upon a time, the 1965 chase used to be run as the H&T Walker Gold Cup. And it wasn't a weight-for-age graded steeplechase over that distance. It was a, a limited handicap for novice handicap chases. So for first and, sec for first and second season uh, uh, novices. Um, the, 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 the system has changed since then to provide more of these weight-for-age conditions, I should say, opportunities. And in some cases, they work really well, but in other cases, they're not working so well. So I think in general terms, it's good that in Britain something has been done about this. The Irish, I think, need to look hard at, harder as well at their program. They've made changes, but I think both countries, both nations need to look hard again still at their program because the fare that we are producing at the moment, while exciting and interesting for purists, is not fulfilling one of what should be the sport's key briefs, which is to attract new new people, new interests. As Ed Chamberlain says of general sports fans, they just won't look at a high-quality forerunner race and say, I can't wait for that. They probably won't even watch a race, regardless of who is running. Lee, last night you were at the RCA Showcase Awards, a, a summation, if you will, of the winners. Big, big night for Scotland, Tom. Um, so the showcase, the showcase awards, the RCA Showcase Awards um, are the most prestigious awards in uh, the racecourse world in in Britain. Um, they are hotly contested. Um, I have an interest as uh, one of the 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 judges, the racing party, one of the sport partners of the Showcase Awards as well. So I was in a rare position of knowing who'd won the prizes before I got there last night. And across a series of categories, um, racecourses were awarded prizes. It was a big night for, say, for Scottish tracks. Um, Musselburgh, Air, Hamilton, Perth were all winners of various categories. Musselburgh won an awful lot of categories and Musselburgh it was who was named the overall showcase champion and a very worthy showcase champion it was too it was successful scored highly across a number of different fronts the judges were massively impressed and just for, for Musselburgh uh, in general and this was a point that the the boss there Bill Farnsworth said in his uh, speech um, in receipt of the the main award was how far Musselburgh has come in a very short space of time we have spoken, written, talked about the travails at Musselburgh in recent years. At one point, 
the race course looked pretty much on the precipice. It was in a dire situation. Its previous uh, management system of the, the Musselburgh, uh, the, the, the race committee there, um, was in a total mess. Um, the, at one point, the BHA withdrew its license to, to race. Uh, it really was in as much trouble as a race course can be. But throughout its troubles and now into its glory period, it's had a very strong team, a very strong executive team headed by the excellent um, Bill Farnsworth. They have brought the race course through. It now falls within the Chester group. Um, that has been a big help to, to Musselburgh as well. And it's a real example of how with strong, effective leadership, a race course can once again thrive. And they were massively deserving of their win last night. Right. A couple of um, uh, points of, of notice. Re well, first of all, rule changes, Lee. So uh, this is the rule changes that are going to be brought in from the 1st of January 2024 uh, surrounding the starts to races, in particular le late load requests on the flat. Uh, they are uh, restricted or they will be restricted to horses that have demonstrated behavioural issues inside the starting stores in a previous race in Great Britain. Um, you can't put forward a late load request from the 1st of January 2024 to a horse that has never run before unless they've taken a pre-race assessment that has specifically identified a behavioural concern inside the starting stalls. The most notable point I took from this um, is is uh, the number of late load requests has has risen over the last decade or so, and there's clearly a belief from the from the BHA that this is in part due to to tactical reasons that they want to avoid. Yeah, um, and the the response from the regulator um, seems perfectly sensible and reasonable it's hard to understand why there has been such a significant increase in late load requests the regulator itself says it believes that this is to an extent a tactical um thing it says these requests are made due to behavioral issues but also increasingly for tactical reasons so you can see why the bha has acted one thing i i i, I do wonder tom is that i was um Again, recently over in Melbourne, raced four days at Flemington, one day at Mooney Valley. Now, everywhere you go in every race, you are going to have issues at the stalls with horses. It's not just limited to, to British racing. But I did notice and did feel during my time there that horses do seem to go into the stalls quicker, more easily, and without the problems that we sometimes get over here. And I wonder, I might be completely wrong, but I wonder if the Aussie system whereby horses have to take part in barrier trials um, before they first race and horses regularly take part in trials outside of racing helps with um, their stalls education um, because certainly it is frustrating um, for people when there are issues at the stalls it's also not fair on horses that go into the stalls willingly and easily because they are left at a potential disadvantage because of the misbehavior of others. And we're also all aware that at a time when the sport is working hard to ensure that races are properly spaced out to maximize uh, fan engagement and betting turnover, that can all be kiboshed by, by races being delayed um at the start so uh, i think it's perfectly understandable and reasonable that the bha is taking some action uh, there's also a point on there um 
regarding uh, the loading process, ear and tail twitching and grabbing, uh, and also um, jump starts are, are now going to be um, entirely without the use of a of a hunting crop. Uh, we're going to park that there, Lee. I have put in a uh, a call to, to Gary Witherford or, or a WhatsApp message to him, uh, notable um, uh, the, the horse whisperer, if you like, who I think could really comment on the the, the ear twitching, etc. But I, I haven't heard back. So I think we'll park that there and perhaps Nick can get in touch with him early next week because I think he could be particularly interesting on, on that subject. Um, and we're going to move on to uh, the, the autumn statement, which I, I thought in horse racing terms, Lee was going to pass without comment. But not so. What do we? What have we learned? No, it does not pass that comment. Sadly, um, there is potentially um, very grim news indeed uh, for British racing because within the or the document that accompanies the autumn statement, uh, there are a tiny few lines, but of potentially huge significance, whereby the autumn statement uh, reports that the government will consult shortly on proposals to bring remote gambling, uh, in brackets, meaning gambling offered over the internet, um, telephone, TV and radio, into a single tax, rather than taxing it through a three-tax structure. What does that mean? Well, in general terms, what it means is that the government is is consulting on increasing uh, remote general betting and pool duty from its current 15% level of uh, operator profits to 21%, bringing it in line with remote gaming. Um, so your, your, your casino uh, games, online casino games. Now that is that has um, real potential ramifications for the sport. Let's put it in context. We are in a situation already where British racing is not exactly swimming in cash. Um, we already have a major problem in relation to existing affordability checks, which um, various senior leaders in the sport have made clear is costing the industry tens of millions of pounds already. The government's white paper proposes to introduce formalised affordability checks. The journey towards that continues as the Gambling Commission uh, goes through the consultation responses it received there has been there have been glimmers of hope on that front with the government saying insisting that, it, that a frictionless system will be needed for the top end of checks and also say they want to try and find a way of uh unifying uh, and bringing together the way that bookmakers uh, deal with existing affordability checks but affordability checks are a major financial headache or more than headache they're a migraine to to british racing um there are talks going on about trying to reform the levy system, but whereas once upon a time they were seen as a real way of boosting British racing's income, it's now more akin to trying to recoup some of the losses that will be caused and are being caused by affordability checks. And against all that, we now have a situation whereby betting duty could well increase on remote and pool betting. The reason why that is significant is that if if if, if that kicks in then bookmakers will inevitably react. They will change the way, they change the offer they put forward to, to punters. Uh, margins will likely change. 
offers will be pulled out and if bookmakers are making less money out of horse racing then one would imagine that they will put less money into horse racing through things like sponsorship we spoke to one senior industry figure yesterday and they're anonymous and that's because i think at the moment uh leaders in racing and betting do not want to talk publicly on this i suspect they don't want to fan the flames they want to be seen to be working constructively behind the scenes with government without trying to twist government's arm but this figure said a huge tax hike on sports betting coming on the back of affordability checks and everything else means the government is basically threatening to blow up the funding of horse racing this is existential for horse racing so that figure really trying to say that this is not just something about oh bookmakers are going to make less profit than they used to be that the relationship within with bookmakers and racing is an inextricable one and when one sneezes the other catches a cold okay over to a man so big in the racing world that they named a podcast after him here's nick well tom thank you as you know i'm here in kildare paddocks for the goss november breeding stock sale but it's a goss november breeding stock sale with a difference in truth because it contains within it this extraordinary draft from the niarchos family uh, 40 mares amongst them the the group one winners, Alpha Centauri, Alpine Star, Albinia, and so many more. Uh, Henry Beebe's the Goffs uh, group chief executive and is with me now. I, I can't really remember a sense of anticipation like it here, uh, Henry. How are you and, and all your team feeling about today? Well, we're excited. We're, we're delighted to be to have the opportunity. We're very grateful to the Arcos family for giving us the opportunity. And as you say, this should be one of the days that we'll look back on and say, I remember that day I was there. And just to go out there and, and see Alpine Star and Alpha Centauri up close, I think you know, these horses, because they've won so many group ones between them, it's the sort of sale that does resonate just slightly beyond the confines of the, the bloodstock cognoscenti, really. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Niarcos family have nurtured these these uh, bloodlines over the last 50 years. And if you're in if any connection to flat racing at all over those la- over the last half century, you will know some of the names and you'll think, oh, I remember that filly. She's wonderful. So, you know, these are these are household names in equine terms. Uh, Alpha Centuria, four-time Group 1 winner, Cartier Horse of the Year, beat the Colts. She was just amazing. Alpine Star is a beauty. They've got great covers. They all go back to the likes of Miesque. It's just, it's an opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah, if you are somebody who, who loves horse racing and or loves pedigrees, just going through the, the catalogue here, you know, seeing Miesque, East of the Moon, Divine Proportions, Denimbola, Six Perfections, just coming up time and time again in these pages. It's, a, it's lovely to see. Absolutely. I mean, they have, the New York Cross family have been one of those preeminent owner breeders down the last 50 years alongside the you know the Sanxas, the Coolmores, the Aga Khans, the Judmonts down the years. They've always been at the top. Everybody knows their colours uh, and they've used enormous skill and enormous passion uh, and it is a unique opportunity. But we've seen how newer concerns have, have taken bloodlines from Marcel Boussac, for example, or, or Jean-Luc Lagardère and, and, and made them their own. It's a, it represents a great opportunity for, for international um, breeders. Where do you think the interest is going to come from today? I think it'll come from all over the world. We've, we've huge Japanese interest. We've American interest. We've really, it's really, this is going to be a global sale. Um, this, our advert, our marketing was once in a blue moon. Uh, it's a cliche, but it's true because these, these pedigrees don't often come to the market. So they've come to the market today and anything could happen. And in terms of the, the remainder of the sale, and I, I almost feel 
I've, I've been overly dismissive saying that because it is up to its usual standard. You've got the His Highness the Aga Khan draft, you've got the Godolphin draft, huge draft from Castlebridge here. Um, it, it, it's business as usual in, in that respect. Well, it's a very good catalogue anyway without the Niarchos draft. I mean, in Castlebridge, you mentioned they've got 61, including another di- a German dispersal of, uh, of Gestrud Honeyhof. We've 52, I think, or 53 from Godolphin. His Highness the Aga Khan is a great supporter of the sale, has done very well. So it's, it's a catalogue for the ages and the cherry on the cake is the Niarchos draft. How are you feeling? I'm feeling uh, very hopeful, very excited and can't wait to get on the rostrum and do my bit alongside Nick. A nice, good sort of, good nerves? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I live to do this. I've, I've been auctioning for 38, 39 years. I love it. All I want to do is sell. And you like, you like to sell any horse, all horses, uh, but it, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, you know, selling these supreme group one winners isn't what we, we live to do. So Nick and I are sharing duties with the Niarchos draft and we can't wait to get going. That's Nick Nugent, of course. Um, Henry, thanks so much. Um, best of luck for today. Can't wait to see them. Looking forward to it. Good to have you here, Nick. All right. I've run into a renowned uh, bloodstock agent, uh, Bertrand Lametier, who is busy inspecting the, the Niarchos draft. I've just seen him having a look at Alpha Centauri and others. Um, we may as well start with that. And then we'll come on to some, some jumping news, which I think everybody will find quite interesting. Um, first of all, this is going to be quite an exciting sale, isn't it? Yes, it's always exciting to see great pedigrees. Uh, you know, we are very, we live very close from the Frenel Buffard, so that's a lot part of my youth mm. uh, to see all these uh, horses running for the one that ran in France. So it's exciting to see them again, and um, maybe we can find uh, one uh, out of this family. Uh, how um, much has this resonated in, in France uh, with with French uh, bloodstock agents and with breeders? Are, are there a lot of people here wanting to get a bit of the this extraordinary family that, that they've seen build up over decades? Yes, I think so. I mean, for, for, for France, he was huge, of course, because um, at the time he was probably the most preeminent owners and breeders uh, that they were, just winning races uh, over any distances uh, and uh, with amazing system trainers. Yeah, it was a bit before my days, but it was an exceptional area. Uh, and in terms of what you think might be within your compass, have you got a, a client list that would be would be heavily interested in investing in some of this stock? Um, no, just looking at opportunities as usual. You know, we've got uh, Tarsals ahead and Arcana, so we're just trying to find you know what, what, what do we find the most suitable if we do find value on a nice filly. And it does seem to me that across all the sales houses, there are more you know active Group One winners. Are coming under the hammer this year than perhaps they have been in a long time. For sure, but I think it seems to be the way the world goes. I mean, you know, Australia, of course, have led the way with, you know, proposing all the top horses on the market and probably Europe will become that way. And that's a good thing for the trend. Now, I said I wanted to talk to you a little bit about jumping because you are uh, responsible for the career of a horse who is pretty short in the betting for the stairs hurdle at Cheltenham called Telem, who's just about the the best hurdler in in france at the moment um what's the what's the plan with with him well the plan would be um to go to the stairs hurdle with one flat race which could happen on the 23rd of february just to put a bit of rhythm into him um he's, he's written history in france because no, he's done what nobody has done uh, he's won five group ones from three to six and that's um, never been done before by any jump horse. And no, just uh, there was one in 1937. All right, that doesn't really count. But in modern area, yeah. um, yes, he is the only horse to have done that, because he won the three, four, five, and twice a six uh, as a, you know, he's an exceptional horse. So I think the challenge is definitely to go for the stairs and have a bit of a sport. Um, Anoshaya Shaya trains him. 
um, you know, you you know just how good this horse is. You also know the strength of the division of staying hurdlers in in Britain and Ireland. It might be more than a bit of sport, mightn't it? No, but I, what I mean by a bit of sport uh, is is obviously we're here for a challenge. Uh, but the most important is you know French horses run in a very very different rhythm, and they need to adapt. You know, when you get to Cheltenham, it's a different to a toy you've got the undulation you've got uh, and a high rhythm to cope with so we'll see how he copes with that but he's an extraordinary horse there's no point hiding it he's proven it well we can't wait to see him your family have got great history with with the Cheltenham festival might be a new chapter i hope so bertie thanks so much thank you tom well i'm in dubai at the moment as is rider ben cohen who's got another nice book of rides coming up on on friday the this afternoon as as we speak and ben joins me now i mean if i wasn't so lazy ben i probably could have come down and seen you and done it face to face but there you are i'm still in the hotel room how's things <laughs> yeah all good all good um enjoying it out here so far it's definitely um different lifestyle but uh yeah it seems to be enjoying it so far anyway so so what would life nor if you'd have stayed back home in ireland what, what what would you have you know it would have been a a lot of dundalks and the like would it yeah, sure, I suppose there's only racing Wednesdays and Fridays in Dundalk and um yeah, I suppose just going up there and uh stay going into Johnny's and um yeah, you'd definitely be a lot colder anyway. were you actively look you would. Were you actively looking for a, a trip abroad or was it a case of, of Michael Michael Costa that is, just, just getting in touch with you and saying I think we can make something work? Um not actively looking, no, but um, I always said if something if something came up, I, I would love to do a stint um, abroad. And uh, when Michael got in touch, um, I jumped at the opportunity. Obviously, had a, a very good start last year and um, seems to have, the team has, has, has grown a lot since, you know. Mm. I, it's, I mean, horse-wise, it's definitely gone up a notch. The, the horses that you've been riding, the young horses that you've been riding, um, you know, it, it it it's an exciting stable to be to be part of out here. What have you learnt? Um, or what are the differences out here? Obviously, the the dirt is a slightly different beast, right? Yeah, no. Listen, the dirt is um, it's obviously way different to to turf racing, but um, yeah, getting to grips with it, and um, I suppose Michael has um has got a lot of very well bred American horses for the dirt, so um. That's a that's a big help when you're getting the leg up on those as well. And and are they different? Those American breads are they are they very different to ride or not necessarily? Um, I suppose there would be a little bit. Yeah, um, they seem to be a lot bigger, stronger set horses um, than your typical European horse. But um, yeah, it definitely helps um, helps on the dirt because you need you, you need a you need a strong horse underneath you. You know. Mm. Um. Homebrew is one of those. He runs in the Dubai Creek Mile, which is the sort of first, the first proper race of the extended carnival that now that now starts before the the turn of the new year. What can you tell us about Homebrew? Yeah, um, I've sat on him last week. He seems to be in in great form. Um, look, he's obviously not fully wound up for his his uh, his first run of the season, but um, he's shown us the right signs at home and. Um, Hopefully he can he can get off on a on, on the right foot. Mm. Um, you, now you're not you've got family out here with you because Andy Slattery's your cousin. Um, so he's that's just coincidence, is it that he's with you out here? 
Yeah, that's just coincidence. Um, we done our apprenticeship with um, Andrew's dad together, so um, yeah, it's 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 coincidence anyway. But it's uh, it's good to have a familiar face out here. And are you here until end of March World Cup, or is there any time that you get to get to go back? Um, planning to be here till the end. I might I might pop home after Super Saturday just to just to sit on it, get to get to grips with a couple of horses and Johnny's, but um. Hopefully, hopefully, if we have a nice team for World Cup, I'll be back out definitely, yeah. Well, it's looking that way at the moment. Ben, top man, thanks for your time. No problem, thank you. Well, from one Irish jockey riding abroad to another, Dylan Brown McMonagall, the um, a champion apprentice of a couple of seasons ago, had another excellent season in Ireland last year, and he is out in Australia having his first ride, Dylan, this Sunday. How are you? Very good, Tom. Thank you very much. Yeah, good, good. Um, actually, a bit closer to you in the world than I would normally be, but it, it's it's still a bit of a, a trip over to you. How long have you have you been in Australia now? When did you land out there? So I landed um, just Sunday past. So we're here for five days now. So um, we're well broken in. What's what's it been like? Was it sort of you know off the plane, straight on horses? Yeah, I got here Sunday and I rode out fourteen or fifteen lots on Monday morning. So. Um, Broke straight into it, no time for rest, um, but it's, it's good to be busy and uh, a bit of sun in the back, which is great too. How, how different has has life been the last five days to, to what it would, I guess not even in the winter back home, but, but summertime back home? Is it just a very different way of, of you know, working horses in the morning or not? Um, well, obviously, the heat over here, they ride out very early, so... Um, I've been getting up at half three every morning and heading into work. Um, I'm living with Adrian Joyce and he also works in um, in the yard with me. So um, I get a lift in with him in the mornings and you could ride out eight or nine lots every day and finish up around 10 o'clock and then the day is finished up then. So, you know, you have the whole day off because you need to get them before the heat. Where they're at home, you might start at 7 o'clock and you probably ride out to 11 or 12 in the day. Um, but everyone has different routines for their horses, um, the same as everywhere in the world, but it's just kind of the time regime is a little bit different as all, and the track work, I suppose, um, over here, off the clock and stuff is really good to learn as well. And you are, you're, you're with Kieran Mary, how did that come about? Well, obviously, um, a couple of months ago, I talked to Joseph about going away and stuff, and um, he says, that Kieran would be a great man to go with, so got in contact with him, and uh, everything was very straightforward from there on. Um, Kieran's one of the best trainers out here, so of course you want to try and go to the best and learn off the best. Um, he's got plenty of horses in different places over here, so I'm very lucky and I'm very grateful to be a part of the team now for the next two months. And when it comes to getting rides, so you got your first one this Sunday, but it is in... Did, did you know you'd have one within the first week? Was it just sort of get over here and, and see when the first one would come up? Yeah, exactly. There was um, there was never any promises or anything. It was just come over and get a bit of experience. But um, thankfully, I have my first one on Sunday and I've got two on Monday as well for him. So uh, that's something to look forward to. I take it, the obviously, you want to come away to, to ultimately, not just for sun on your back, but you want it to bring you forward as a rider. I think we've definitely seen it with 
with with riders going out there James Doyle would be one who who I'd be more familiar with who who seemed to take a real step forward when he spent a bit of time in Australia is that's the ultimate goal of this right to 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 you've had an incredible few seasons but this is to 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 you know take you even to the next level exactly and um, that's what it's all about and um, learning as much as possible and, and seeing what way they ride out here and, and you know learning the ropes of, of the different countries is really good um you know all you all you want to do is try and keep on improving and get better every day so coming over here in the winter time is a big advantage um to try and get the extra you know step ahead of the rest and, and try and learn what whatever we can hmm. Well, look, good luck. We look forward to, to following you Sunday, Monday and beyond. And um, hopefully you don't have to wait too long for the first winner. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Lee, I just need a tip from you, please. Uh, a tip from me? OK, Tom, well, I'm afraid this is, this is a bit boring, um, but I'm going to go to to Haydock tomorrow. Um, I'm not going to go in the in the better fair chase, which I think is, a, for me as a purist, a, a fascinating race, but w- won't appeal to to general sports fans potentially because of the, the reasons that we've outlined. But there's a really strong handicap hurdle at 220 on Saturday. Um, it's a race in which Emmett Mullins runs a three-time winner called Slate Lane, ridden by Donna Mailer, um, owned by um, a gentleman who has done extremely well at taking um, handicappers trained by Emmett Mullins and Willie Mullins. Uh, to Britain and elsewhere, Paul Byrne. Um, this is a horse who's won his last three races. He's around 72 now. Uh, the owner had a lot of bad luck with his runner, his world back runner in the Greatwood Hurdle last Sunday. Uh, I think Slate Lane could uh, change that, and I'm tipping him to win the 220 at Haydock on Saturday. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Lee. Good luck with Slate Lane. Uh, that was Friday, the 24th of November. Nick back on Monday. Charlotte will be around this evening for the Saturday edition. So tune into that. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.